0: Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com.
1: The U.S. Marshals Service had a busy year, arresting no less than 73,000 fugitives in 2023, and it concluded a multi-agency operation focusing on violent fugitives and drug pushers that had 600 arrests alone. Here with an update, the director of the U.S. Marshals Service, Ronald Davis. Mr. Davis, good to have you with us.
2: Thank you, Tom. It's good to be with you.
1: And I want to start with that number of 73,000 fugitives. Was that up from the year before, down? What are the trends here in arrests that you are obligated to make every year?
2: So that would be slightly down, but I think for us, Tom, we look at what the 73,000 represents. So for example, in that number is close to 6,000 homicide suspects, some 10,000 people associated with gangs. And, and equally important is that that number represents really great coordination with our state and local partners. In other words, it is really data-driven. We're focusing on, as you may have heard the Attorney General talk about, focusing on the drivers of violent crime, that the most communities are a handful of people that are exacting a lot of violence, terrorizing the community. So we work with our state and locals to target them so that we can remove them when they have warrants from the community. When I look at that number, I, I just see a lot of great work that the deputies and our task resources are doing.
1: And how does the decision get made as to who does an arrest in a given case? Why the U.S. Marshal Service and not, you know, the New Hampshire State Police, for example?
2: That's a great question. And since 2000, there was an act passed, a Presidential Threat Act, that gave us authorization for the United States Marshal Service. And the key word is to assist our state and local partners with the execution of their warrants. And so that request comes from the local agency. It would be that local PD, that state police that's usually working in partnership with us uh, on a daily basis anyway, saying these are the warrants we would want your assistance in. And a part of that, Tom, as you know, a lot of crime now, especially those that are trying to evade capture, respect no boundaries. So they'll move and hide all over the country and the globe. And they know we have the resources to track them across the United States, and we have tentacles all over the globe so that we can find them. So it starts with the local agency asking us, will you help us with this warrant? And then we basically partner with them to find that fugitive.
1: And how do the cases get divided up, say, between immigration cases where it would be ICE and some communities don't cooperate with ICE versus the Marshall Service? Because any of these gang members, you mentioned 10,000 of them, we know that among the people coming illegally, there are some gang members in there.
2: So we don't track our fugitives, our warrants are not based on immigration status. So, for example, if the local PD says they're looking for a homicide suspect, what we would focus on is that the person is one for a homicide suspect, who he or she is, and then start the investigation to find that. But it's not based on immigration status. I think for us, we just don't track that number. We, we track the offense. And if the agency is asking us for assistance for that clearance, we will then help recover that fugitive.
1: All right. And when you do arrest someone, where do they go? Do they go to federal facilities or the local or state facilities. What happens to them when you nab somebody?
2: So a little bit of both. We have two types of warrants that we will serve. The federal warrants are those that we are by statute or mandatory to execute on behalf of the court. So the court issues a warrant, a federal warrant, and then the marshal service helps retrieve those fugitives or apprehend them, and then we would bring them to federal court where they would then be in our custody until some type of adjudication of the case. For the local and state, it depends. If we find them in a local community, we would turn them over to the local agency doing the investigation or the local jail so they can be processed through the state. If they're in a different state, then we would put them in the local jail in that state, and then it's up to that agency then to work out the extradition between states. So pretty much if I were to summarize it, our local state warrants go back to the agency that issued the warrant, and the federal ones will come into the custody of the United States Marshal Service and the various facilities that we have around the country.
1: It sounds like this can be dangerous work because you're not arresting wallflowers that go willingly all the time.
2: No, I I I would I say no, we're not arresting wallflowers. Yes, it's heck of dangerous in a sense that you're right. When you talk about six thousand homicide suspects, robbery suspects, people involved in narcotic trade, unfortunately that's a lot of high risk activity and you know recently we just did a three-year review of our officer-involved shootings our deadly encounters and during that period of time we had 47 times 47 separate incidents in which deputies task force officers were shot at came under gunfire i've been the director for two years a little bit over two years now and maybe in two weeks from now i will visit a sheriff's deputy that was shot and injured and that will be the 8th task force officer, deputy, or local officer that I will visit as a director that have been shot and wounded in line of duty executing the warrants or the marshal's mission. So it is very, very dangerous. It is, therefore, as a director, my number one priority is to make sure that the officer's safety, morale, and wellness is there. Because our deputies and our admin professionals, we cannot take care of the American people if we don't take care of them first. And I think we have to make sure that they're safe, strong, well and support it in order to serve the American people.
1: We're speaking with Ronald Davis. He's director of the U.S. Marshals Service. And what are some of your HR challenges? I mean, different agencies have problems hiring people, retaining people. What's it like for the marshals? What are your priorities there?
2: So I think it'd be fair to say that recruitment is a little bit more challenging today than it was when I first came in some years ago. I'm an age myself, and I became a cop in 1985 in the beautiful city of Oakland. But although with the challenges, we still have a pretty high interest. People still want to be a Deputy U.S. Marshal. They want to be part of the Marshal family. Our retention is very good, that people, once they come here, they become part of the family, and many, if not most, will retire. I think the challenge for us moving forward is making sure that we stay attractive to a new generation, making sure that we can respond to the needs of a new generation, making sure that the agency maintains a high-quality candidate a very diverse candidate pool that we should take advantage of, and making sure that we're prepared for the challenges of tomorrow. If there was one thing that frustrates me the most, Tom, it would be we do sometimes move at the speed of government, and which means we can go relatively slow. And so we always are looking for ways to make it more efficient, but we have to do so without compromising the vetting process or the quality of deputies we're bringing in. We have the most bright, intelligent, critical thinkers in the profession And I don't want to do anything to compromise that, so that does take time. But other than that, I think we are doing well. We are hiring. We are reducing our vacancies, and we are continuing to build a workforce that is uh, doing a tremendous job.
1: And one increasing demand on the Marshals Service has been to guard judges because I guess it's a sign of some larger ill in society that judges are less safe than they used to be, and there's been some lurid incidents there. And what's your sense of what's going on there? And then I have a follow-up question on law enforcement itself.
2: So the current threat environment, I, I just recently had the ability to speak in front of our House Judiciary Committee, the Subcommittee on Crime and Surveillance, and I'll share with you what I shared with them. I am deeply concerned about the increases of threats against our judges and court officials. In fact, over the last three years, it has more than doubled. The concern is such that I would have to say that the current and evolving threat environment constitutes a substantial risk to our democracy. We cannot have a judiciary that cannot operate independent and operate under the threat of violence. And so it is a top priority. We are now putting more resources to attack this than we have in most people's memories that have been here because it is that critical to our democracy. And so it is more than doubled, is problematic. And what we're seeing with the nature of it is also concerning is that we're seeing more and more people resulting to either violent rhetoric or actually acts of violence because they're opposing a court decision, an opinion, a government action. And I'm just gonna kind of paraphrase uh, Dr. King, if I may. It seems like we have not learned how to disagree without being violently disagreeable. And we need to get back to some levels of civility. We need to get back to acknowledging that words matter, especially for those people that carry influence to others. That comments made, even if they're not threats themselves, but they're violent rhetoric, they're targeting individuals. Sometimes people act by themselves to take that on, and it turns into threats and violence. So... It is a top priority for the Marshal Service.
1: And I think it's fair to say that in the last few recent years, there's been a terrible diminution of respect for law enforcement itself in the country. You say you became a cop in 85. Well, I'm quite a bit older. And I remember, you know, if the cop looked at you cross-eyed, you pulled your car over in town because he'd call your dad if you were speeding, you know, that type of thing. But how does that affect the Marshal Service? And what do you see the trends in police respect and law enforcement respect?
2: So I'll start with the safety part, if I may. I'm definitely seeing an increase in assaults and attacks on law enforcement. I think we're seeing that across the board, although we are starting to see some promising declines over the last year or so. But we're starting to see it. We definitely see an increase over the past few years. And this is why we have to invest heavily in officer safety and training and equipment and technology, find all ways possible to make it safer, to reduce that risk. We cannot eliminate the risk, and I think our deputies and law enforcement officers all over the country acknowledge the inherent risk that goes with the job, but we can do everything in our power to reduce that risk and mitigate the risk, if you will. With regards to respect, I think what that offers right now is is not just a challenge, but I would submit that it offers a unique opportunity. It is an opportunity for us to engage our communities, to show our communities what value we bring to them, how we can enhance community safety, the quality of life, and the partnerships that we can restore that kind of relationship that automatically garners the respect that I think everyone wants, whether you're from the community or you're a law enforcement officer. And I think the more we engage, the more we get to know each other. And I would just say this to the American people, the more you get to know my deputies, you'll have respect for them, you'll love them, because they are men and women who are just really committed to trying to help others and willing to sacrifice things that most of us are not. We have to have that engagement for people to see that. So. When people talk about that you know, the relationship now or the kind of the negative atmosphere around law enforcement, I'm a I push and say that may be true, but there's an opportunity in there, an opportunity to really start establishing strong relationships in the community.
1: And how often do the various federal law enforcement components get together and exchange best practices? I've lost track of how many federal law enforcement agencies there are, but lots of agencies have their own, and then there's marshals and Border Patrol and so on. Do you all have a forum by which you can exchange best practices?
2: Let me start with the Department of Justice. I would say yes. So my esteemed colleagues at the Department of Justice would include, obviously, the DEA, the ATF, the FBI, Bureau of Prisons. But we also have partners with uh, Office of Justice Programs, the COPS Office, Criminal Division, so, I think we come together regularly to talk about one, what's happening around the country, that we're targeting, using our resources based on data and embracing those evidence based programs. Two, that what trends we're seeing. So, a trend, for example, for DEA with fentanyl poisoning may impact violent crime in the area, which may impact the need for us to run an operation to support that. So, we're always linking. And the same thing with ATF is to make sure as we recover 6,000 firearms with our state and local partners, that they're all being entered into the national tracking system, that we the left hand talking to the right hand, that we become complementary to the law enforcement picture, if you will, around the country. So we do that, and we also do that across the department. So we do have a lot of engagement with DHS, Department of Homeland Security, Homeland Security Investigations, Customs of Border Protection. I don't want to miss people, ICE. I think there's always room to engage more, but I think we are really committed across the board to communicate to coordinate so that we're force multipliers and not redundant or competitive. Hopefully that that makes sense.
1: Sure. And in an earlier stint at the Justice Department, you had to do with the COPS program, the community-oriented policing types of initiatives that were going on. And fair to say that federal law enforcement practices can often be models for those at the local and state level?
2: In many cases, it can be. I mean, we invest in good policy research and practices. And what the COPS office can do is, not just what we can model to federal government, to federal agencies, which I think we do a great job, but how you can also learn what are the best practices throughout the 16,000 local state and tribal law enforcement agencies. So that if we embrace a decentralized model of policing in the United States, then not everyone's gonna have the capacity to have a research and development vision, a small agency, but a cop's office, an office of justice programs that can learn that a program in Oakland, I'm gonna pick Oakland obviously, Oakland, California, may help out a city in Texas. And that you can do the research, make sure it's evidence-based and we can share the information. That way we are, for example, the lessons learned for apprehending 73,000 fugitives. And over the last three years, you know, four years, over a quarter million fugitives, those lessons learned can turn into outstanding training and tactics and investigations. So we have a Center for Excellence in Officer Safety and Wellness. So all that can be put into so that we keep learning as a profession, not just the federal government, but our local and state partners. And that's a really important time when you have the model that we have so that local communities may have only five officers, but they should be able to tap into the collective knowledge of all 16,000 or the collective knowledge of billions of dollars of investments over 50 years of research and development. That's how we maintain our profession.
1: And I wouldn't want to let you go without talking about the latest kind of big gambit that just concluded a couple of weeks ago, Operation Washout. And we should say washout is two words, not washout. And you arrested 600 people, but this was a big interagency effort. Just give us the quick story of what happened there.
2: So Operation Washout is uh, one of several fusion investigation operations we run. Right? We have Operation Washout, which in this one, what you're talking about was a 12-city operation that resulted in over 600 apprehensions. Strong partnership with the DEA is, was based on a lot of drug offenses and fentanyl poisoning. We have Operation Triple Beam that sometimes includes more cities for an extended period of time. We have Operation North Star that are very specific targeting cities with the highest level of homicides or homicide rates. So these operations are tremendous because a couple things are required. They should be data-driven. The strategy should be part of a larger evidence-based strategy. They require a strong partnership with our local, state, and tribal partners. They All of them require community engagement. And I think we are then focusing on those that we believe are the drivers of crime, and that would be part of the attorney general strategy. And that means good coordination, not with just our law enforcement agency, but also our prosecutors. The U.S. Attorney's Office, in many cases, are, are re- really the main coordinators for this in the districts, and they also do a tremendous job.
1: Anything we can anticipate coming up where you're gonna I guess you can't really signal where you plan to concentrate.
2: I'm gonna give a pretty loud signal because I want our judiciary to know this, I want the American people to know this. We are going to continue to focus heavily on judicial security. Our democracy demands that we protect the third branch of government, so we will do that and as mentioned we will always be all there to contribute towards violent reduction. So it is our goal for twenty four to enhance our, our ability to provide security for the judiciary to increase our capacity to take more and more warrants from our state and local partners. And then the other one is to make sure that I don't have to visit any more deputies or task force officers that are shot and wounded so that we will make a heavy investment in time and resources and making sure our deputies and our personnel are safe. And I think those three things, if we achieve that in 24, then the agency will, will have a very good year and will continue the historic uh, success of the United States Marshal Service.
1: And just another question on that other branch of government, Congress. Nobody has their 2024 appropriations as we speak, and Lord knows when they will. But in general, do you feel that you have the resources you need? What would you ask for if you could increase resources? What are the priorities for what you need in funding?
2: The 24 priorities we have is outlined in the president's 24 budget. And I think that budget captures the resources that we've asked for to look at the growing and evolving threat picture. So Congress has that budget. They're, make, they're going through the budget process right now. I think when we do get a budget, the challenge of any director or leader is going to be to work with the budget you have to prioritize, to make sure that those priorities are, are met. So as we move forward with judicial security, that cannot be lessened. We have to continue that down that road.
1: Anything else we need to know about the Marshal Service before we let you go?
2: No, I, I would just kind of close with this. It's, I've been in law enforcement now for as you mentioned, since 1985, and I would say it is in this agency, it is a tremendous agency. I think sometimes people, I appreciate the uh, opportunity to talk about us. People don't Sometimes don't really appreciate everything that we do. They know about the fugitives because we have some good stories to tell. But I don't know if they realize as judicial security. And I like to capture us in, in some simple terms. It's besides protecting our judiciary, we have this very unique picture, if you will that we are one hand responsible for tracking down the most heinous violators in our country. And at the same time, we've been authorized and we're now helping to recover our most precious because we have operations now and authority since 2015 to help locate and recover missing and endangered children. And so when you look at those two missions, you look at the idea of removing those who are causing issues in our community and then recovering our children that are in many cases exploited, that are victims of trafficking. I think that kind of captures just how important this agency is to the American people, in addition to protecting the third branch of government. So any opportunity to shed a light of what we do, any opportunity for me to brag about the men and women of this agency is always appreciated.
1: Ronald Davis is director of the U.S. Marshals Service. Thanks so much for joining me.
2: Thank you, Tom. we appreciate
1: it. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style.